0: Well, good morning, church. That was pretty bad. Let's try that again. Good morning, church. How many of you guys this morning would just say, man, I I need to lean on some promises that God has for me this morning? Anybody? Come on. i tell you what, before we jump into this today, I just feel like as we were singing that song, and there's so many people today, got so much stuff going on. We've got some moments of great excitement in the room. We've got One family is going to have a baby tonight. and We're so excited about that, and we can't wait for that. Uh, We've also had someone that we love very much, part of our church, uh, 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 three of them, in fact, brothers that lost their dad to pancreatic cancer on Friday, so there's hurting. And so I just want to say this to you this morning is that, God, there's over 7,000 promises in God's word, and today, which one do you need? Do you need the one that says, lean not on my own understanding, but all my ways acknowledge him, and he will make my path straight? Do you need the promise that says, he will never leave you nor forsake me? What promise do you need this morning? Right now, right where you find yourself, maybe it's been a crazy week, a busy week, a, a chaotic, in a lot of different ways. Maybe your family's hanging on by a thread. Maybe your relationships are hanging on by a thread. Maybe you're just wrestling with some junk today. And you're just like, I don't even know what promise to claim. I just need to know that God is with me and for me and going to work in my life today. And so whatever promise you need right now, I'm just going to ask you once again, let's just bow our heads, close our eyes, and let's just go to our Heavenly Father. God, we love you. That song, as we sang that, I'm just reminded as I look through the the pages of the Old Testament, all these guys we, we mentioned, all these people who you gave promise to, All these people whose your promises you fulfilled. And God, at the end of the day, as we read your word, as we come together, there's one resounding conclusion we can come from, from your word, and that's that God, no matter what happens, you are always faithful. And so God, I pray today for all of us in the room. We've all got some promise we need today. Some need the promise of comfort. Some need the promise of direction. Some need the promise of healing. Some need the promise of whatever it is. God, would we lean on you today? God, would you speak truth to us, through your word? For it's in your precious and holy son's name we pray. And the church said amen. 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 Today we're going to continue in our series. Uh, called No Other Gospel as we go through the book of Galatians. And as we've gone through the book of Galatians, it's really become one of my favorite letters of the Apostle Paul because Paul is a no-nonsense guy in the book of Galatians. So right out of the gate, Paul establishes in chapter 1, what is the gospel? And I love Paul because Paul makes it so simple. He says, here's the gospel. You ready? Jesus came and he died for our sins to rescue us, period, end of statement. That is the gospel message. That is what we call the good news, is that Jesus came, he died for our sins, and he came to rescue us. If you're a Christian today, are you thankful that God has rescued you this morning? That's not very exciting. Are you thankful God has rescued you this morning? You should be excited because hell was your destiny and now heaven is your home. And so there should be excitement about that. And so Paul lays it out for us. And then Paul even begins to tackle what he views as the greatest enemy to the gospel. That greatest enemy is religion. The idea that Kent talked about. The idea that I have to perform in order to be accepted. I have to be good or have good intentions in order to be right with God. And what Paul said is it's not about that stuff. It's by grace alone. It's grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. That's it. And so he lays it out. Then Paul does something fascinating. He even takes his own story and lays out his own story and his own calling and his own conversion. and He lays it out. Why? To bring these churches and the area of Galatia back to the basic truth, back to the simple truth of who Jesus is, what he's done for us. Why? Because they had so quickly abandoned it. So he brings them back. Now today, as we jump into chapter 2, we're going to see the Apostle Paul begin to deal with something that is super important in the life of a church. It's the issue of unity. So if you have your Bibles, chapter 2, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. We're going to read 14 verses, but we're not going to do it all together because it's a lot to read. And so we're going to read them as we come to it. But Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 is where we're going to begin reading. The first two verses. There's four things I want to extract from this passage. And here's the first thing. Verse 1. Paul says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And I went up because of the revelation that was set before me, though privately before those who seemed influential. Talking about the apostles. The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, as Paul's thinking about this unity, here's the first thing we learn. Paul lays out for us the value and doctrinal unity. Now, what I mean by that is that Paul understands, and we're going to talk about the idea that we must be doctrinally, biblically, theologically, there must be unity in the body of Christ. Now, if you know, you may remember this, that Peter, James, and John, and those disciples that lived and walked and talked with Jesus, those guys' primary ministry was to the Jewish nation. Paul's primary ministry was to everybody else, the Gentile nation. What is a Gentile? Somebody who wasn't a Jew. basically all it was. So that's who their ministries were. And Paul says after 14 years. Now, I'd already been there once, three years after I... I came to know Christ. But 14 years later, I went back to Jerusalem. And why did he go back? To make sure that his gospel message was on point with their message. Now, here's what Paul was doing. Paul was going back to remind these early disciples, Peter, James, and John, and all these guys, he was going back to remind them that I have been faithful to preserve the gospel message. Not a gospel message that you taught me. We learned that in chapter one. He didn't learn it from the disciples. Who did Paul get the gospel message from? None other than Jesus Himself. Right? He's like, but I want you know I have been faithful with this message to preach it and to proclaim it. I have been faithful to the gospel message, and I want to come back and just make sure that we are on the same page. Now, think about that for a moment. Here's Apostle Paul, and if you know anything about. the, the, the New Testament, one conclusion you probably have made is that probably one of the greatest voices in the New Testament in the first century for the gospel of Jesus Christ was the Apostle Paul. I mean, this guy wrote more letters in prison than you can shake a stick at. This guy would go places, and he would just go teach in the synagogues, and he would tell people about Jesus. I mean, this was one of the greatest mouthpieces for the first century Christianity that there ever was. But yet we see in this passage a humility in Paul that says, I felt like I needed to go back to Jerusalem. I need to go back and I need to meet with James. I need to meet with Peter. I need to meet with John. And make sure that what we're teaching, what we're proclaiming is all on the same page. And why would Paul do that? Because he understood there must be, we must maintain unity when it comes to the gospel message. Because can we agree that that message can easily get distorted? Come on, church. Can we agree with that? Yeah. You think in the first century when they didn't have the New Testament written out for them, it was easy for that to get distorted? Sure, it was. And so Paul exp- expresses a great deal of humility and go back and remain this doctrine of unity. Now, why was this important for the churches of Galatia? Because these churches of Galatia, when Paul shows up and he preaches this gospel, like okay, we believe that. But then when the false teacher showed up preaching a different gospel, like okay. we We kind of believe that too. And Paul's like, okay, if I can go back and let you know that I've met with what you would call the who's who of the disciple list, that I spent time with, using the word influential, he's talking about Peter, James, and John, I went back and spent some quality time with the guys who walk with Jesus, talk with Jesus, help cast out demons, started the first church, these guys that spoke at Pentecost, and thousands of people got saved, I went back and hung out with them. And I got news for you. Their message... And my message are the same message. But the message you bought into is not the same message. So Paul wanted them to know that we must maintain doctrinal unity. Now, why is that important? In a church, when there's no doctrinal unity, you know what there is? Chaos. Chaos. Division. And when there's no doctrinal unity, people can easily be led astray in what they believe let me tell you something that's really important to us as a church Cross Life East about every six weeks we offer a class called Discover Cross Life and I know some of you are thinking well I don't want to go to that class because that class is all about how to join the church well it is about that a little bit but if you've ever taken the class here's what you found out I talk about what matters to us I talk about the vision, the mission, how we, that's the lens, how we see things. I talk about what does it mean to be part of who we are. There's no pressure. There's no coercion. We don't stand at the door with a shot collar going, if you don't join our church, we're going to buzz you. I mean, none of that stuff happens. I mean, like we talk about everything, but one of the most important things we talk about is what we believe as a church. Because just look around the room. Just take 10 seconds. Look around the room. Just take a look. It's all right. Stare at your neighbor for a moment. Look around the room. What do you see? I see people, but you know what I see? I see different ethnicities. I see different cultures. I see different backgrounds. I see different doctrinal heritages in this room. And if we're going to make a difference for the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to make sure as a church we have doctrinal unity. So, for example, there's never going to be a person that will ever stand on the stage that will tell you salvation comes through another way besides Jesus. Nobody's ever going to teach that. And if they do, they're gonna. It's gonna be a short-lived time, and we're probably never going to be on the stage ever again. You're never going to have someone that teaches you that you can lose your salvation. There are things in the church, from our small group lessons to, to the person standing on stage. There's going to be doctrinal unity. Why? Because when we have doctrinal unity, we can make an impact for the kingdom of God. Without it, it's chaos. Without it, people will let astray. And so as a church, I'm telling you, one thing that Paul is teaching here that we need to buy into is we need to know what we believe, why we believe it, and then start living like we do believe it. Doctrinal unity. And I believe as a church we have that, but that's the reason. If you've never gone through Discover Cross Life, you need to go through it. You need to know what we believe about the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, what we believe about salvation, what we believe about eternal security, what we believe about baptism and the Lord's Supper. You need to know what we believe because, listen, I love all of you in the room. But if you come from a different heritage and you don't believe the way we believe, you're not changing us because what we believe, we think, aligns perfectly with the Word of God. Can I get an amen on that one? So I think doctrinal unity is crucial for Paul. So one thing we want to extract is the value of doctrinal unity. The second thing I want you to notice is found in verse 3 through 5. Paul says this, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because a false brother secretly brought in and slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ, so that we might bring us into... Slavery to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Here's what Paul says: Now, do you need to understand the value of doctrinal unity, you need to understand the agenda of the false teacher. Yes, we need to understand the value of doctrinal unity. We're all on the same page. Now, let me go back to that for just a minute. Everybody, look at me. Okay. There are close-handed issues doctrinally, and there are open-handed issues. Okay, close-handed issue. Salvations through Christ alone. That's it. Open-handed issue. There's a lot of them. And I just want you to know, on the closed-handed issues, we will maintain doctrinal unity. In our small group leaders, and on this stage, and as our deacons, we will maintain those things. But Paul's like, not only do we need to know about doctrinal unity, we need to know about the agenda of false teachers. False teachers have an agenda. Look what he said here in back verse 3. He says, but even Titus who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Here he's talking about false teaching. What was the primary thing the false teachers, these Judaizers, had gone into the churches of Galatia, and here's what they taught them. Yeah, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to die and go to heaven, and you want to go to heaven when you die, here's what you've got to do. It's Jesus plus keeping the Mosaic law. It's Jesus plus circumcision. Now, in our culture, we kind of want to giggle at that one, right? But circumcision back in the day was the way God distinguishes Israel from every other nation. Much like for us today, we don't circumcise for that reason. We call it baptism. Baptism is what distinguishes us from everybody else in the world, that we are going to live a life for Christ. And so he says, listen, here's the false teaching they're permeating is this idea of circumcision, this idea that it's Jesus plus something. It was a ritual of identity for the Jewish culture but did you pick up on what he said? When I went back to hang out with these influential people, Peter, James, and John, and other disciples, I took Titus with me. Titus was not a Jew. He was what? A Greek. He was a Gentile. And when I took him back to hang out with these influential people, guess what? Mind blown. You ready? They didn't ask him to be circumcised. They looked at him and viewed him as equally part of the kingdom of God as they were. There was nothing about Jesus plus anything. These influential people said, no, it's just Jesus alone. And then he tells them what the agenda of the false teachers are. Look at me in verse 4. Yet because a false brothers secretly brought in, slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ, so they might bring us into what? Bring us into what? Say it like you mean it, church. Bring us into What? slavery the agenda of false teachers is to enslave us they want to put a yoke on us it says jesus plus performance jesus plus obedience jesus plus the law and they want to put a yoke on us that enslaves us that it's not just jesus but with jesus we have to perform we have to obey and we have to keep the law that's how to be safe. That's what they want to teach. And I want you to know the agenda of false teachers is always slavery and to, to enslave us. They come in with a desire to sabotage and to enslave us. And he says, they look, they act like one of us. Did you pick up on that? He said here, he said, these false brothers who were secretly brought in. There were these people that knew the language, knew the lingo, came in acting like they were part of us, but they had one agenda. That agenda was not to teach that Jesus alone saves us, but Jesus plus, and then you fill in the blank. That's what saves us. Now, I want to say this you this morning, and I want us to think about this. We too must remember that false teachers have an agenda in our world today, and they have the same agenda there are people who will teach something other than Jesus alone saves us. And what is their agenda? Whether it's spoken or it's not spoken, it is to bring us to slavery. Here's what I mean. When you said yes to Jesus, before back it up. Before you said yes to Jesus, the Bible teaches that we were all slaves to sin. Sin controlled our life. Amen? Sin controlled us. But the moment you said yes to Jesus, you were set free from the bondage of sin. Sin no longer controls you. You may sin by choice, but it no longer controls you. You are a child of God. Amen? Amen. And Paul says, listen, what false teachers want to do is take you back to slavery. I'm just going to tell you, some of you in this room would agree with me that salvation comes through Christ alone. But if you look at your life, and you really evaluated your life, you find yourself over and over and over again trying to do better, work harder, best intentions, because somewhere intuitively you think, maybe God will love me more. Maybe God will bless me more. And you're allowing yourself to fall back into a yoke of slavery. And we have false teachers today in the world. Here's what false teachers do for us. You ready? Number one, if they flat out deny God's word, we, those are easiest to spot, Right? Come on, are you with me on that? Those are fairly easy to spot. Like the ones that say, hey, you need to follow Buddha or you need to follow Muhammad. Well, those are pretty easy for us because we now know that's not Jesus. And so those are easy to completely deny God's word. And then there's those that come out and want to elevate one truth over another truth. Those are false teachers. People that want to elevate grace over truth and not be grace and truth. Those are false teachers. But here's the one I think we see the most and need to be aware of. It's those who come out and want to elevate man-made traditions over the truth of God's Word. Can you think of any category of people that fit into that one? I can think of a whole lot of people. And I'm not talking about denomination. I'm talking about mindsets. People who elevate man-made traditions over the truth of God's Word is false teaching. What's Paul's point? His point is this. False teachers have one agenda. Slavery. Slavery. And so I guess the question I have on my heart this morning is this. It that have we given in to any kind of false teachings? Have we bought into any kind of false teachings? You know, have we bought into the notion that, yes, I know Jesus saves me, but i got to do all this other stuff to be loved by him, accepted by him? That's false teaching. Look what Paul said in verse 5. I love how he wrapped this up in this portion. He said this, to them, talking about the false teachers, we did not yield in submission even for what? A moment or an hour. So the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. He's like, listen, we too have faced false teachers. Hear this. This this was a dagger into the heart of the churches in Galatia. You ready? Here's what he says. We too have faced false teachings. But unlike you, we've not given in for even one moment. Ouch, right? Paul says, therefore, I am a protector. I am a preserver of the truth of the gospel. Just a quick question. Are you a protector of the truth of the gospel? When you hear people say things that are false, are you quick in love, in love, in love, did I say that enough? In love to correct them, or do you just kind of cower away? Paul says, listen, there's value in, in doctrinal unity. But I also want you to know there are people that are false teachers. They're coming. And listen to me, if you looked around the room, you know what I find is that God is blessing our church. Do you believe that? Say amen. amen. I mean, he has blessed us in ways that just blows my mind. Do you think the enemy likes that? No. He hates it. Do you think the enemy is going to try to raise up some people that might try to snake their way into our congregation or snake their way into a small group and try to create doctrinal division and try to create false teaching? You better believe it. And we've got to be alert we've got to call it out and go, whoop, that wasn't right. That's not biblical. And out of love, we've got to protect doctrinal unity and call out false teaching. Third thing I want you to notice or kind of pulled from the passage is found in verse 6 through 10. I love this. This is a fascinating passage. He says this, and from those who seem to be influential, talking about the disciples, what they were makes no difference to me. God knows no partiality. Those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the uh, circumcised, he says, for he who worked the Peter, his apostolic ministry to circumcision, worked also through me and mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas John and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship, and to Barnabas and to me, and we, that we should uh, go to the Gentiles as they go to the circumcised, only they ask us to remember the poor, that every, the very thing that I was eager to do. Now, here's what Paul says. Yes, there is a value in doctrinal unity. Yes, there are false teachers that are coming. But he says this, he wants us to notice there's partnership in the gospel. Now, Paul's ministry was to who? The Gentiles. Peter, Cephas, James, and John, who was their ministry to? The Jewish people. And he said, I went back. Remember, he went back to make sure they're all on point. And did you pick up on what he said here? He said, I go back to make sure I'm on point. And he said, they added nothing to me. We had to figure it figured out. We were on the same page. In fact, he goes on to say, no, we were on the same page, but they affirmed my message and they affirmed my ministry. They knew that I was reaching people they would never reach. We were partners. In fact, they were so bought into what I was doing, they extended the right hand of fellowship. We are partners in the ministry. Now, let me say something to you in case there's ever a mistake of this. There are churches, meaning all across Orlando, And the churches that believe that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, we are partners with them. They are not competition to us. Did you hear me say that this morning, church? They are partners in the gospel with us. They are not our competition. They're not. And too many times in church life, we get in this competition mode. If we want to go take their members, we want to do it. Listen, we are working for the same kingdom as long as Jesus in the gospel is central to the church. He said they extended the right hand of fellowship there. They were eager to support my ministry. It wasn't a competition, but we're working together to advance the gospel. Now, why would that be important to these churches of Galatia? It would be important that there's a partnership because what Paul is teaching and what they are teaching are the same, which means these guys who are pillars of the faith have affirmed Paul's ministry, and we are working together for the kingdom. So for the Church of Galatia, this was in a way to authenticate Paul's ministry to them. It's almost like Paul saying, "Look, I told you I wasn't telling you a lie. I told you I was on the same team Jesus, these guys are for. We are partners together. But there's one thing I want you to notice, and this is going to be the toughest pill to swallow, it's found in verse 11 through 14. The last thing I want us to extract from the passage. But when Cephas, now once again, Pauls, he went to Jerusalem. Had this great encounter, talks about doctrinal unity, talks about the false teachers are coming, talks about the hand of fellowship, the partnership that they now have together. Now we got to fast forward a little bit. Now Paul's in Antioch, so we fast forward a little bit, and he says, when Cephas, referring to Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, what does it say he did? I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Like Jews. Now, in the original Greek language, this is like Paul putting his finger in Peter's chest and like having it out with him. Now, what we learn from this is this whole idea of the gospel unity is that the boldness that the gospel invokes. The last thing is I want to see is the boldness the gospel invokes in our lives. If you are a protector of the truth of the gospel, should that invoke boldness in your life? Yes. Yes, it should. And if you notice what happened here, look what Paul did. Let's go back to verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. It says that he opposed Peter to his face. He didn't go over here and talk to somebody else about him. He went straight to Peter and said, Peter, we've got a problem. He confronted him. Now, when we talk about confrontation, that freaks most of us out. And so we're going to take a quick poll this morning. How many of you hate confrontation? If you don't vote, I'm gonna make some assumptions, okay? How many of you don't enjoy it, but we'll do it? How many of you enjoy confrontation? Okay, we'll talk later, we'll talk later. (laughs) That's a problem. All right? So, so there's two sides of that spectrum that really can take us to bad path. The idea of not confronting at all, or the idea that, hey, I kind of enjoy this those things can lead to shallowness or arrogance, but the reality is, we see Paul show up, and, and he confronts Peter in Antioch. Now one of the reasons many of us don't like to confront people is because we're like, if I confront somebody, that means I've opened myself up to be confronted. So if I call somebody else out, that opens me up to being called out by somebody. Some of us don't want to confront because we just don't want to be that guy or girl. We're like, that's none of my business, right? And then some of us don't do it because, quite frankly, when we say it, I'm going to say it out loud, be ready for it, we're just cowardly. Just don't want to do it. we kind of, kind of back up. Look what happens in verse 12. Let's go back to it. For before certain men came from James, he was eating. Talking about Peter with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Why did Paul confront Peter? Because it had everything to do with table fellowship. We've talked about this before. But table fellowship in the first century mattered a whole lot. So here's what was happening. Peter was hanging out with Gentile Christians. He was sitting at a table with them. Now, why is that important? It wasn't like they went to, you know, five guys and kind of chilling at a table. To have table fellowship with someone implied something. It implied, I accept you. And by Peter sitting down at the table with these Gentiles, it sent a message that I believe you're as much a child of God as I am a child of God. You as much as an uncircumcised Gentile who loves Jesus is just as much a child of God as me, who is a Jew, who has been circumcised, loves Jesus. We are on the same page. And for him to sit down at that table was incredible. He says, you and I are equal in the eyes of God. Isn't that good news? Sure it is. But when the Judaizers showed up, those people who said, yes, it's Jesus, but it's also circumcision. Yes, it's Jesus, but it's also keeping the law. When they showed up, what did Peter do? Come on, what did Peter do? He separated himself. He's like, oh, here they come, and he walked away from them. The idea in the Greek is he walked away as if he didn't even know them. Now, what message do you think that sent? That sent a message that, hey, you don't belong here. You're not part of the kingdom of God. It sent a message that you are second-class citizens. That's the message it sent. So Paul is upset and frustrated that Peter would sit down with them, sending a message, you belong here, and that I understand that grace is for all. It's for the Jew. It's for the Gentile. But when he separates himself, he sends the message that you don't matter, and you're second-class to the Jewish nation. Now, is there a problem with that? Come on, is there a problem with that? Have you ever done that? Here's what I mean. Some of you have incredible hearts. Let's think about your high school years. Maybe you had that tender heart, and you were sitting down by that kid at the lunch table that nobody else was set with. And you found joy in that. You found joy in the conversation, letting them know that their life matters as much as anybody else. But then the popular kids who you played football with or basketball with or you're cheerleading with, they walked through the cafeteria door and you immediately made an exit from the table and went over waiting for them to show up and to be part of your group now. Didn't you just do the same thing that Peter did? Sure you did. Look what happens in verse 13. Here's the worst part. Because let's be honest, was Peter's actions hypocritical? Come on, was Peter's actions hypocritical? He said he believed that the grace is for all, but his actions said something different. Look what happens in verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted how? Hypocritically. Hypocritically, along with him, so that even Barnabas, the son of encouragement, was led astray by the hypocrisy. Okay, everybody, please hear me on this. When we say we believe one thing and we live a different way, that is hypocrisy. Can I tell you the worst part of hypocrisy is you're taking somebody with you. Somebody's watching. Somebody's paying attention. Barnabas, Barnabas was the son of encouragement. Barnabas was an evangelist for Christianity. And here he is watching his hero of the faith, Peter, sit down and go, oh, man, this sends a great message. And then Peter withdraws. Okay, what's that all about? And so the hypocrisy of Peter now rubs off on all these Jews and Barnabas, listen, our hypocrisy can negatively affect people that are around us. What does that mean? Stop living hypocritically. If you say it and you believe it, live like it. And let's be honest. Come on, everybody look at me. It's really not that hard, is it? But it does take courage. It does take courage to say, I believe this and I'm going to live that way. Peter was hypocritical. And look at verse 14 as we wrap this up. But when I saw their conduct, I would add here parentheses, I was disgusted. I w- and they was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas, "Look, I- here's something interesting. Paul is so disgusted he does not even call him Peter. He first knew him as Cephas. You ever done that with somebody? You're so mad at them, you know, you just gotta like, give them those random names, like that jerk over there. Or what, whatever it is, I mean, Paul is so distraught with Peter, he calls him Cephas. And look what he says in verse 14. And Cephas was before them all, he said, I, he said this, I said it before all of them. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, which he was, not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews. They're like, Peter, listen, you're being hypocritical. You're telling them they're accepted. And then when these other people show up, you discard, you kind of walk away and you discard them and you're making them feel like they've got to be a Jew now to be saved. What are you doing, Peter? What are you doing? Your life, and here's what he says, your life doesn't align with the good news of Jesus. How you're living is not in rhythm with the good news of Jesus. And so Paul, because he's the protector of the gospel, has a boldness about him that maybe we need. Everybody look at me. You may not like to hear this, but it's the truth. We have a God-given responsibility that when we see someone who's a professing Christian, not walking in line with the gospel, to confront them with the goal for them to repent and stop living hypocritically. Let me give an example. Let's say we were in the line at Walmart on, internet, on, on 50, which is the worst Walmart in the world. <laughs> Amen? If you've not been there, please don't go. Please don't go. <laughs> if there were levels of hell, that would be one of them. <laughs> and let's just say I'm checking out. And Rachel Jesse's like three people behind me. And let's just say I get a cashier, because none of them are this way. Let's say I get a cashier that's not the sharpest tool in the shed. And so, and I'm trying to check out, and they're confused. And the greater their confusion gets, the more angry I get. And so my voice gets loud, and my words become degrading and condescending. Not that any of you have ever done that before, but you get really vocal and loud, and you wonder, where's the manager? You know, like I, I, I left Home Depot or Lowe's yesterday, and I feel like I need to be on Lowe's of payroll. I'm checking myself out. I'm paying my own card. I'm like, I need to be on the, I mean, I'm so daggone frustrated. But let's say I'm in line there, and I'm voicing all those frustrations, and, and you hear me, and this poor girl is back there trying to check me out, and she's just cowering with my insults. Does Rachel Jesse have a responsibility to pull me aside, or maybe even publicly right there, go, hey, Doug, let's not do that. Hey, you know what? I don't think that's how we should respond. Does she have a biblical responsibility to hold me to what I say I believe and who I'm about? What's the answer? Yes. yes. And so do you. Every single one of us have a biblical responsibility. Now, if you enjoy that, if there's part of you when I said that, go, yes, that's sinful. We'll talk about that. That's a real problem. And there's part of you that goes, I would never, ever do that, that's sinful. And that's a problem. We've got to realize we have a god-given responsibility to be protectors of the truth of the gospel and my life Should be reflected in how I live Can I tell you this you may not believe this but it's true. I've had people do that to me. I've had people correct me That's not very much fun if you're the one being corrected You know why because the holy spirit conviction you, you go, you know what you do stink doug You're terrible and they're right I'm telling you, it's our God-given responsibility. Now, there's four takeaways I want us to get from this passage. Here's the first one. We must have doctrinal unity in our church. If we don't, false teaching will encroach, and it will lead us astray. Second takeaway is this. We must be aware of the agenda of false teachers. Listen, false teachers only want to take you and I back to legalism, only want to take us back to this idea of religion that is Jesus plus something. Here's the third takeaway. We must realize what unites us is the gospel. You know why we all can come into this room and sing and celebrate and lift up the name of Jesus today? It's because we all have come to this place where we go, Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. It's faith alone because of grace alone and Christ alone. That is what unites us. What unites us is not our skin color. It's not our background. It's not our heritage. What brings us and unites us is Jesus and Jesus alone. And we need to remember that. Here's the last takeaway. We must allow the gospel to give us the boldness to call out hypocrisy, and to ask for change. Now, this is the one you're like, okay, I, I, the rest of it was great, but I care nothing about this one. It's our responsibility. So let me ask you some questions that I prayed this morning. First of all, as you think about your own life, have you allowed yourself to be led astray? Has there been a moment? And I know you wouldn't say, well, no, it's Jesus plus, you know, giving my tithe. That's only way to be saved. I know you don't believe that. But have you allowed that concept of works-based performance encroach even in your faith? Now, here's what you need to know. I perform not to be accepted. I perform because I am accepted. Did you hear that? I obey the Lord not to gain His acceptance. I obey the Lord because He has accepted me. The way I live my life is out of the overflow of how He's loved me, accepted me, and rescued me. I don't do those things, so He will. So have you ever let yourself be led astray. Here's the second question for you, is do, will you make a commitment today? And will you accept the challenge and realize that your God-given responsibility is to be protector of the truth? And that when you see hypocrisy happen, lovingly, everybody say that with me, lovingly, you call it out and ask for change. And here's the last question. Right now, Is your life, the way you're living, in line with the truth of the gospel? Are you living in rhythm with the gospel? Well, Doug, what does that mean? In Galatians chapter 5, Paul tells us. Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, let us walk with the Spirit. And not satisfy the desires of the flesh because the desires of the flesh are not the desires of the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit aren't the desires of the flesh. They are opposed to one another. But when we walk by the Spirit, we don't give in to the desires of the flesh. That's what I mean. Are we walking in rhythm with the Spirit of God? I know many of you are Facebook junkies and you've seen a campus called Ashbury. Anybody seen this? how revival has broke out there. Anybody seen this? Me and Nancy? Okay. Can I just tell you something? I want you to hear my heart on this. It's incredible. I'm excited for them. But you know where revival begins? If you were to study the great awakenings our world has ever experienced, if you were to study the great revivals our country have ever experienced, you know where revival begins? Repentance. Always begins with Repentance. So I'm asking you this morning, if you're struggling in your faith and you want to see God bring revival to your soul, you've got to ask yourself, am I letting myself be led astray? Am I willing to commit to, to being the protector of the truth of the gospel? And is my life walking in rhythm with the gospel? And if not, I have one challenge for you today. Repent. Say, God, I've been walking this way, but I want you. I want to live for you. I want to make a difference for you. I want my life to matter for you. And so if you need to do that, this altar is going to be open. If you're that person today that has let your life be led astray by a false doctrine and you've never trusted Christ, listen, there's only one truth you need to hear today. Jesus loves you. He died for you and is ready to rescue you. And will you accept that? For all those who believe, he will give eternal life. And do you need that this morning? Right now, everybody stand with me if you would. Everybody stand, every head bowed and every eye closed. Every head bowed and every eye closed. God, we love you. I thank you for today. I thank you for the power of your word. I think as we look at Galatians 2, we see this incredible need to maintain doctrinal unity. Because without it, the church will be chaos. And God, I pray for some men and women in our church who have been here for a while. Who know what we believe and and what we're about. They might be like knights standing on a wall going, we will not let false teaching come in. We will not let... Chaos and division enter our campus, we will maintain Dr. Unity. God, I pray for some people that you would convict them with that. God, I pray, as Paul pointed out, that we would realize there are false teachers and they're coming. They want to do all they can to create division, but maybe we see them, recognize them, and deal with them. God, I pray that we would remember that what unites us, what makes us one, even though we are so diverse, so many different backgrounds, so many different heritage. What makes us one is our faith and our common faith in Jesus, the Son of God. But God, I pray this morning that we would let the gospel, the good news of Jesus create boldness in our life, boldness to share our faith, and boldness that when we see hypocrisy, that we might call it out in love. Call it out and beg for some change. So God, this morning, I pray I pray for a spiritual revival, much like their experience in Ashbury. But I know revival begins with repentance, with us coming to the end of ourselves and saying, Jesus, we desperately need you. I need you in my marriage. I need you in my finances. I need you in my workplace. I need you in my relationship. God, Jesus, I just need you, God. So I pray today that we would take a hard look in. And if we've let ourselves be led astray, we would come home. If we've never trusted you, we would say yes to you. We would put our faith in you this morning. If we want to be protectors of the truth, that we would, as we see hypocrisy, we would call it out. And ultimately, Lord, I pray that we would make a real commitment today that our lives would be in tune and in rhythm and in step with your spirit. May we live a life that's honoring and pleasing to you. God, I love you. Thank you for today. And it's in your precious son's name we pray. Amen. Now this morning, if you're that person that's never trusted Christ and you were to put your faith in him, Jason and Kelly would be right over here. Pat and Willie are right back there. I'll be standing right here. We would love to tell you more about what that means. But for believers, would you like a spiritual revival to break out in your life? Would you like that? Starts with repentance. Your repentance of your heart Maybe you've let yourself be led astray. Maybe your life is not in rhythm with the Spirit. Would you just maybe come and get on your knees before God and say, God, I need you. Maybe your marriage is struggling. Maybe your relationship is struggling. Maybe your finances are struggling. Would you just get before God and say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I've tried everything else, but I desperately need you. You're the only one that can intervene and step in and make a difference in my situation. Maybe this morning you need to step out of your seat. I know you're some of you are way, 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 way back there. But maybe you need to find your way to an altar and just say, Jesus, I need some time with you this morning. How the Lord's leading you? Would we be faithful to respond to him?